I'm Dr. Leif Tapanilla from the Idaho Museum of Natural History, and I'm here with Peter Pruitt from Zoo Idaho, and this is The Nature of Idaho. Coming to you from the 1B, Bannock County that is, we're talking all about Idaho, its wild places and wild faces, the natural setting that makes Idaho an incredible place to live and be proud of. Today's guest is Ethan Davis. He's an avalanche forecast with Sawtooth Avalanche Center based out in Haley, Idaho. We're talking, Peter, about avalanches. Yeah, it's kind of a good thing to talk about. You know, Pocatello seems to be surrounded by mountains. Well, absolutely. I, I know so many people who enjoy backcountry skiing in the in the winter or snow machining. Or sledding. S- or sledding or, or whatever, getting out yeah. there and being out, uh, going to the yurt system that we have around town. It's really great, and uh, we want people to be safe. So we're going to talk about snow and snow on slopes, which give us avalanches. And when when that snow on slopes slips. Say that three times fast. No kidding. Yeah, don't. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) How about nature news? Today, Leaf, we're going to talk about the megalodon shark. Oh, a favorite. And when you think about it, especially, you know, we've got some of those Meg movies, and uh, the megalodon is always portrayed as a supersized great white shark. That's right. It terrorized the ocean, you know, over 3.6 million years ago. Eating whales. Eating whales and all kinds of good stuff. <laughs> but, but you know, the image of the megalodon comes basically from its teeth right. and some vertebrae. So it's not a whole lot to go not on a lot. when you're trying to decide what the megalodon looks like. For sure. So we had a group of 26 researchers from around <laughs> the world. And what they did is they, they measured the whole vertebral skeletal system of a great white shark with a CT scanner and then compared it to a previous reconstruction of the megalodon vertebral column. What came back was that the vertebrae strongly suggested that the megalodon more similarly resembles the mako shark. Okay. So they're same in the same shark family, but the mako is a lot longer. Long and slender. S- and slender, yes. And so with this long, slender megalodon, you know, it's still a big, scary predator, but they're kind of looking at this elongated digestive tract. Okay. So the megalodon didn't have to eat as much food as, say, a supersized great white shark. Oh, that would Maybe make more sense, right? Right. And so still a major predator going around and eating whales and other things, but not as often. And that got them to kind of think on what was the reason or a potential reason as to why the megalodon went extinct. You know, I think there was some discussion and thought that it just basically overate everything. But with this new research and the longer megalodon, some are considering that maybe when the great white shark showed up, yep. it's a much quicker predator and it's, oh. got a, it's got a bigger appetite than the megalodon. And they're thinking that maybe with the great white, competition showed up and the great white actually started reducing more of the prey items within the ocean than the megalodon itself. Very interesting. I like this idea. Mm-hmm. And 26 researchers. 26 researchers. That's a whole lot of people. You know, I'm sitting here, this is some of the stuff that you guys do here at the at the museum in ISU, Absolutely. is it not? It is, yep. So the megalodon is is uh, a big, really charismatic, recent shark. And we work on the really, really, really old ones from 200 and some million years ago. But it's similar techniques and similar challenges of dealing with sharks that don't fossilize because most of their body is cartilage. And yeah, squishy. they don't have a whole lot of so bones in them, do they? So it's not a lot to preserve. So um, it's a lot of uh, you know, detective work to try to 
puzzle out what these things actually looked like, why they might have disappeared. So it's it's really cool to see this paper come out. Thanks for sharing it. Well, today we're going to talk avalanches. That's a hard turn from ocean predators to land hazards. <laughs> um, our trivia question today, though, is dealing with avalanches. How many unique types of avalanches or avalanche problems are there? There's a lot of them. We're going to talk about it when we come back from the break. Stay tuned. Get continued access to local news and all the programs you enjoy through the Listen Live link at KISU.org. Or try using your web-connected Amazon or Google smart speaker with the command, Play KISU. Hey, welcome back from the break. I want to welcome our guest today, Ethan Davis. He's an avalanche forecaster with Sawtooth Avalanche Center in Haley. Thanks for joining us today on The Nature of Idaho. Thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. I am a forecaster for the Sawtooth Avalanche Center. We're based in Ketchum, Idaho, but we have forecasters that live in Haley and Stanley. And essentially, we are tasked with providing avalanche information for folks that are recreating in the mountains in this region to help keep them safe from avalanches. So how did you get into this business? I think my origin story with uh, my interest in snow really goes back to when I was a kid. I lived in the uh, Portland area, and for whatever reason, it seemed to always snow on my birthday. And I was convinced <laughs> that was uh, just for me. Uh, so I had a fascination of snow early on. Uh, as with most avalanche forecasters, we have a passion for skiing or snowboarding or snowmobiling in the mountains, and that was my case as well. I then went to uh, graduate school at Penn State University and studied weather, and while I was studying weather, I came across an ice physics class. It may sound pretty boring to most, but the molecular physics of ice is actually one of the more interesting, I think, unsolved mysteries in, in nature that's left. And I got to work in a laboratory setting, essentially growing small ice crystals to figure out what kind of clouds would form and, and how long they would persist in the upper atmosphere. That's fascinating. The, the connection between meteorology and weather forecasting and avalanche forecasting, is it's a natural one, right? You, you have to understand where it comes from and how much, and then, that, of course, the effects on ground. Yeah, exactly. So a lot of times we, we say that the uh, weather is the architect of the snowpack. So if you dig down into the snowpack, you can you can literally see storm by storm the weather history of the winter. And so by having a better understanding of how ice works, how it changes within the snowpack and how it reacts to storms, you can learn something about avalanches and how to predict them. So I'm going to jump in with this question, Leif. Yeah. Let's start with the basics. What is an avalanche? Yeah, the basic definition of an avalanche is really just snow cascading down a steep slope. And a lot of people envision avalanches only happening in the, the high mountain peaks of some distant far off land. But uh, if you pay close attention, there are actually small avalanches that happen in, in relatively small terrain all around us here in Idaho and including uh, the alpine peaks that we have so many of in this state. Yeah, an avalanche really is just loose snow moving down a mountainside. If you envision a, a landslide, which is rocks and dirt and mud, and turn that to snow, that's that's a snow avalanche. 
Okay, Ethan, I, I want to maybe dispel a myth here or a, a notion because I've seen pictures of avalanches like on YouTube or whatever, and it's always the camera's far away and you see this gentle kind of cloud develop and, and rolls past trees and all this kind of stuff. It's like a landslide, but it's snow. And I, I feel like there's almost an intuition that, oh, well, it's just like a snowstorm passing by me. And of course, I think we all know that it's more violent than that. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about the power that's involved and why you might not want to be in an avalanche? <laughs> Certainly. So avalanches can rocket down a slope at pretty alarming speeds. It really depends on the type of avalanche, and maybe we'll touch on that a little bit later. But that cloud of snow that you're referring to that you see in a lot of those images or videos is what we call the powder cloud. So that powder cloud might be ahead of, of the actual plug of snow that's at the center of that avalanche. So the, the mass of that snow-filled air is obviously less, but just the powder blast alone, even without the, the plug of snow in the middle, is enough to knock down trees, literally just Jeez. bowling them over like matchsticks. Once you include the mass of the center of the avalanche, though, then, then you can really do some damage. And we're talking there have been portions of entire towns and villages that have been completely destroyed. Uh, in the early days in the Western United States, a lot of mining installations have been completely wiped out. Uh, the power of an avalanche is enough to gouge the landscape. It can pick up train cars, wrap them around trees. Uh, even here in Idaho, uh, just a few years ago, we had avalanches that picked up and removed houses from their foundations, completely destroying a couple of them uh, just outside of Ketchum. Wow. You definitely don't want to ski down an avalanche, right? <laughs> or even pretend that you could outpace it in some way, right? It's right. just, it's it's way faster than you can imagine. Yeah, avalanches can travel up to 200 miles per hour. 200, so. wow. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's really impressive. I presume if you if you are caught in an avalanche scenario and were to survive the force of it, then you're buried in snow. Yeah, exactly. And and alluding back to the power, the destructive power of these avalanches, a, a lot of uh, folks that are involved or caught in an avalanche die of trauma. Uh, right. Particularly, you find yourself somewhere that has a lot of trees or cliffs or rocks. Um, essentially being ping-ponged down the slope in that sort of environment. With this avalanche, it's not like powder that you ski through. If you're going down the mountain at 200 miles an hour, that snow is getting compacted. It's not a little snowball. It's tight, and if you get buried in there, there's not a lot of air pockets inside. Certainly. I think everybody in Idaho has an idea of that uh, berm of snow that's left at the, the base of your driveway after the plow goes by. Maybe you've shoveled your deck once and you move it off to the side and then literally within hours or minutes, you go back to that same pile of snow and it, it's fundamentally changed. It sets up a little bit. So now that we've got an idea of what an avalanche is like, what, are, what causes an avalanche? It's not just one type of condition. There's all kinds of things that can end up resulting in an avalanche. Certainly. Yeah, so there are two primary types of avalanches. The The first category would be wet avalanches, and then obviously the opposite would be dry avalanches. Wet avalanches are pretty self-explanatory. Anytime the, the snowpack undergoes rapid change, whether that's rain deforming the snow 
or very warm temperatures deforming the snow or direct sunshine deforming the snow that that can all weaken the snow surface and cause natural avalanches meaning avalanches that occur on their own the dry snow avalanches are the ones that are actually the more dangerous type of avalanches part of this might just be that folks that are out recreating in the backcountry don't necessarily want to be walking around in the snow and the rain the skiing and riding conditions are often not ideal when it's when wet avalanches are on the table. So maybe there is some avoidance or lesser users out in the mountains during that amount of time. But dry snow avalanches, particularly uh, slab avalanches, was what we call them, are the most dangerous type of avalanche and the type of avalanche that annually kills the most people in the Western United States. So a slab avalanche, let's let's describe that a little bit. I'm, I'm imagining a plane of weakness, something uh, gives and you have a slab, a, a large segment of the of the hill slope that fails. Yeah, exactly. So the basic recipes for for a slab avalanche is that you have to have that cohesive, more dense layer of snow that you can envision. Maybe if you think about your coffee table and you put a textbook on that coffee table, the textbook would be the slab. Uh, now, if you put some weak layer between the slab and that coffee table, say you put uh, some marbles there, for instance, and then you tilted that um, onto its side, it's it's pretty obvious to imagine that uh, book sliding right off of the coffee table. So what we've done is we've we have a slab, we have a, a weak layer of snow that exists below the slab, which doesn't bond very well to the underlying snowpack. So we have a slab, we have a weak layer, and then of course we need a, a steep enough slope for it to slide because obviously these are happening on fairly steep slopes. What creates that weak layer underneath the slab? What are some things that help in a sense? So the most common way for weak layers in our snowpack to form is during drought. Uh, during the drought, we have calm, clear nights and the snow surface gets very, very cold. And that causes the snow crystals on the surface to change fundamentally from what you might imagine as a snowflake uh, that's easy to make a snowball to essentially an angular crystal uh, that if you picked it up would resemble a pile of rock salt or sugar. And that rock salt sugary type snow does not bond well to each other. It also does not bond well to the uh, subsequent snowfall that lands on top of it. I, I get the picture of that really well, actually. Right. And so, you know, as a kid, I grew up in Iowa. When winter hits, it can get bitterly cold and there's a lot of wind. And so you get this nice layer of snow. And then the next thing you know, it hardens almost like a rock and you can basically walk on top of it without <laughs> breaking through. And I and that's as you're doing that description, that's what I kept thinking about. So you've you've got something like that forming, and then you've got a new snow event that adds on top of that. It's just kind of like a hard that there's your coffee table that got formed in a sense. Yeah. So I think what you're describing we would term as a crust. Yeah. So a crust can form on top of existing snowpack. Like let's say you have a, a warm sunny day and that starts to melt just slightly. And then overnight it refreezes and you've created this hard sliding surface. Subsequent snowfall can then fall on crust. The first day it falls, it might be nice and soft and you can make a snowball out of it. If you, if you looked at it under the microscope when it fell, 
it might look something similar to a snowflake that you'd see on a on a holiday card but within a day or even hours you can pick up that exact same snow and it's become way more angulated there aren't nice long soft branches anymore those branches have retracted back and turned into sharp angles and those sharp angles just don't interlock with each other that snow does not bond well from uh, snowflake to snowflake anymore and it does not bond well to any subsequent snowfall and it takes a really long time for that weak layer of snow to eventually heal so as you stack more and more and more snow atop of that thin weak layer uh, it's that weak layer that actually breaks to release the slab of snow that has been created by subsequent storms on top you're a forecaster of avalanches how how would you go about finding or recognizing that, for example, a slab avalanche is in the area or is a, a knowable hazard at any given time? We're looking for those crystals that are angulated that could potentially not bond well with the subsequent storm that we're expecting. Uh, and we monitor those weak layers throughout the season. We track them the whole season long. And then as subsequent snowfall builds that slab above, the more snow we get or the more rapid that occurs, we start to know, okay, slab avalanches are eventually going to be an outcome of this because we know we have the recipe now. We have plenty of steep slopes. We have a weak layer. We've buried it, and now we've built a slab at the surface. That's the recipe that's kind of sitting out there waiting for skiers and riders a lot of times in the midwinter. And that's what we try to point out when we describe what kind of avalanche conditions that we have out there is we point out, hey, here's the weak layer. We have this slab. It's this deep. We found it in these locations. And then we give them an idea of how likely it is that they would be the one to trigger an avalanche. So there's ways to mitigate avalanches. And I would imagine you won't mitigate all potential avalanche hazards. So when it comes time to maybe reduce some of the effects of an avalanche. Where do you look for mitigation? And then how do you mitigate the avalanche? For avalanche mitigation, usually those are ski areas that are trying to reduce the risk of an avalanche in or near their terrain. It could be something that they're protecting, um, like a, a highway division. Idaho Transportation Department has avalanche forecasters. And they are obviously protecting people on the roadways railways and also municipalities that all have assets or people that are in harm's way and they will go out and and actively mitigate avalanches usually with some sort of explosive so those can be thrown by hand there can be permanent installations that create an explosion in known start zones avalanches are predictable particularly if you watch the same piece of terrain for years and years, you can really understand what kind of conditions lead up to an avalanche and where they like to start from and where they actually run to. What are the general recommendations for folks going into the backcountry, equipment to bring with themselves and maybe signs to pay attention to, to at least reduce the risk that they're going to be in, uh, in harm's way? We recommend that everybody first checks the forecast. Uh, if you go to avalanche.org, you'll see the different avalanche centers that surround Idaho and are uh, forecasting for portions of Idaho. And if you click there, you'll get actionable information that can tell you a lot about 
what types of avalanche problems we're concerned about for the day, um, where they might be, how likely they are, how big they are. Uh, you'll see a lot of photos of recent avalanches and so forth. So there's a wealth of information at Avalanche Forecast Center websites. If you're in an area that does not have an avalanche forecast, you need to remember what the ingredients are for an avalanche, which is essentially a slab of hard, cohesive snow over softer, weaker, less cohesive snow. If you're finding that sort of uh, snowpack structure or setup in the areas that you're riding, that should raise a red flag. Most obvious red flag you're looking for when you're traveling around avalanche terrain is a recent avalanche. So you can use natural avalanches to, to help you predict that the snowpack is potentially unstable, and that should be a red flag. Most avalanches occur either during or shortly after heavy precipitation events, whether that's rainfall or snow, simply because they're overloading that weak snow. So that's an obvious red flag. Another red flag would be windblown snow. If you imagine just a simple hill in your brain, and it's going to snow maybe six inches everywhere on that hill. But then you add a wind that's coming from left to right. That wind can deposit four times more snow on the right or the downhill side than on the upwind side. So if you think about that, the amount of stress that that's putting on that weak snow at the bottom of the snowpack is four times greater in that wind-loaded area than it is in the area that it's scouring from on the windward or left-hand side. So wind loading is also a red flag. If you're up in the mountains and you're seeing big cornices that are being created, or you're watching a lot of snow blow across the slope, that should be a red flag. Excellent. So I, I wanted to ask you a question about our regional area in Southeast Idaho. Are we special in any kind of way in terms of avalanches out here in, in the Pocatello region that's a little different than elsewhere? Yeah. So the Pocatello region, as well as if you just extend down further to the to the eastern and southeastern corner of the state and the Bear River and into the big holes and so forth, is actually, unfortunately, a hotbed for avalanche accidents in the last 10 years. It's also a relative hole in avalanche information. We have avalanche centers, which have sprang up in some of the more like well-known, popular uh, winter destinations like, say, Sun Valley, Ketchum area, um, down in the Salt Lake area, as well as over in Jackson and then up in Bozeman and so forth. And meanwhile, there's been huge growth in southeast Idaho, and there's obviously lots of beautiful mountains. What is interesting is when we looked at the avalanche accidents in, in eastern Idaho, we found that they were primarily from Idaho. In fact, they were uh, all, almost all within 100 miles of where they got themselves into the avalanche in the first place. When we dug into the accident statistics, an alarm stat that we came across was that uh, six of the last seven victims had inadequate safety gear when they went into the field. And when we talk about uh, what it is, just the absolute basics that you need to both have on your person as well as understand how to use, you need uh, a beacon to be located, which transmits to another beacon of somebody in your party. You need a probe. They can use their probe to locate you under the snowpack. 
And then once you've been located or pinpointed with a, with a probe, so literally someone feels you at the end of the probe underneath the snowpack, you obviously need something to get them out of there, which is a shovel. Those three basic components need to be on every person that is considering going out into the mountains in the wintertime where there is avalanche hazard. Very sadly, six of the last seven people that were killed in eastern Idaho did not have those things on them. And I do know that at least some of them would still be alive if they had uh, the proper rescue gear and they had a partner that knew how to use it. A serious issue in in the winter when we're trying to have fun out in the backcountry, but there are hazards there to be aware of and, and ways to make ourselves safer. So I started the show with a trivia question about avalanche and different types of avalanches, unique types that uh, that there are. Could you help us with that? Yeah, there are actually nine different unique types of avalanches that we split roughly, as we mentioned earlier, into uh, dry and wet snow types. Uh, furthermore, you can break them down into slab avalanche types or loose snow types, which you'd maybe equate more to potentially a landslide or just loose snow falling down a slope. There are a lot of different avalanche types, and the reason that we identify nine different types is that so when we convey that to someone reading the forecast, each one of those avalanches, if you can describe it well, has different ways that you can avoid them. So if it's a wind slab avalanche, for instance, that slab was created by the wind. So if you know that there are wind slab avalanches, you can avoid places that have been windy within the last day. So maybe you hide down a little bit lower, keep your head out of the wind, um, down more sheltered terrain at lower elevations, and you can avoid that type of avalanche problem. So really these are meant to be educational tools and bins that we put avalanches into to help persuade and educate folks on how they can travel safely to avoid that type of avalanche on that given day. Awesome. You know, I think the general rule is just be prepared. Take your time and get everything that you need before you go into the backcountry. Thank you, Ethan, for joining us today. And we really appreciate our conversation. And for everyone who wants to learn more about avalanches, especially in our area, please go to avalanche.org. The Nature of Idaho receives support from listener contributions to KISU-FM. Shows are produced at KISU Studios in Pocatello at Idaho State University with editing and production done by Ricky Colapietro. Music is by Idaho's very own Sons of Bannock. Audio of this and all past episodes of The Nature of Idaho can be found at KISU.org or from Spotify and other select podcast services. Send your thoughts and suggestions to noid-kisu at isu.edu.